Thanks so much, Pastor Ray. And thank you so much to the Willingdon congregation for welcoming us from Columbia Bible College. I was um, a little bit struck through those baptisms there. They were just awesome testimonies. Amen? But I was thinking I may have to go back to the college and, and let our students know that part of pastoral training is to do some uh, weightlifting so that you can lift those people out of the, uh, of the, the tank there. Yeah, it's great to see what God is doing here in Burnaby, in the city of Vancouver and beyond. And it is uh, just with a great deal of joy that I greet you and bring greetings from the staff, faculty, and students, the 400 students that we have at Columbia Bible Colleges. And if you have questions about our programs or what it all looks like, please talk to us after the service. But at this point, I I really want to get into God's Word. Before we read our text, I want to start with a question for you all. Suffering, poverty, slander... How many here would like to sign up for that? Raise your hand. I don't have a whole lot of takers. And yet that was the experience of the church of Smyrna. The second local church to receive a message from Jesus in the book of Revelation. And as we continue in this series here at Willingdon, entitled The Church on Fire... We're going to turn our focus to a church that experienced the fires of persecution. The church in Smyrna was under severe pressure from both human and spiritual enemies. And Jesus warned them that more suffering was on the way. This congregation, along with the church in Philadelphia, were the only two to receive no words of judgment in the letters to the seven churches in Revelation. Instead, the resurrected Jesus, the first and the last, encouraged them to remain both fearless and faithful when faced with crushing affliction. And he promised them an eternal reward. If you have your Bibles, turn with me to Revelation chapter 2, verses 8 to 11, and we'll read our text for today. To the angel of the church in Smyrna write, These are the words of him who is first and the last, who died and came to life again. I know your afflictions and your poverty, yet you are rich. I know about the slander of those who say they are Jews and are not, but are a synagogue of Satan. Do not be afraid of what you are about to suffer. I tell you, the devil will put some of you in prison to test you, and you will suffer persecution for ten days. Be faithful, even to the point of death, and I will give you the crown of life. Whoever has ears, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. He who overcomes will not be hurt at all by the second death. Lord God, as we contemplate your word today, we ask that your Holy Spirit would speak to us, that you would impress upon our hearts what it is we need to know and how we can put it into practice. We want to be faithful as your followers, Lord Jesus. And it is in your name that we pray. Amen. The Lord Jesus was direct in warning this congregation that they were going to suffer even more than they already had. 
Christ never hides the reality from his people that they can anticipate opposition and at times even violent opposition. Scripture is clear. The Apostle Paul writes in 2 Timothy 3 verse 12, In fact, everyone who wants to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. In fact. To be frank, suffering for Jesus' sake is a foreign concept for most of us here in North America. Although increasing hostility towards evangelical Christianity suggests that our situation is beginning to change. Now the message to the church of Smyrna is full of both warning and tremendous encouragement for us to those who have ears to hear. If we pay attention to the suffering of our brothers and sisters all around the world, we know that were it not for God's divine intervention, the church of Jesus Christ would be wiped off the map in certain regions. Countries like Iran, North Korea, and Libya quickly come to mind. But what is remarkable is that the church often experiences or emerges strongest when faced with the most brutal opposition. The quote of the second century church father, Tertullian, boldly declares, The blood of martyrs is the seed of the church. This short letter to the church in Smyrna provides us with some clear reasons as to why that's the case. Now the content of each message to the seven churches is unique to their situation, but the format is similar in all of the letters. First, the Lord Jesus identifies himself with an image appropriate to each context. Second, He provides a description of the church, which usually includes a word of judgment, although not always, as we will see today. Third, what then follows is a word of instruction concerning how they should respond to his message. And finally, he concludes with a promise for those who will overcome. In every one of these letters, the opening identification of Jesus is crucially important We need to pay attention to how Jesus identifies himself. For the Christians in Smyrna to to endure hardship, they had to rely on Jesus. Pressure, slander, persecution, even death. These troubles only have meaning when they are viewed through the lens of Jesus. To persevere for the sake of the gospel for the sake of Christ, requires that we know the resurrected Lord. It's not enough to know about him. We need to know him. These believers needed to be fully convinced that their lives were in the hands of the Almighty God who had conquered death. They had to rely on Jesus. Now why does Jesus use this other title, the first and the last, with this particular church? This designation shows up elsewhere in Scripture, especially in the book of Isaiah. I'm just going to give you one example, Isaiah 44, verse 6. This is what the Lord says, Israel's King and Redeemer, the Lord Almighty. I am the first and the last. Apart from me, there is no God. When Jesus uses this title, first and last, he leaves no doubt in his readers' minds. He is the one and only God. In describing himself in this way, 
He's telling the church in Smyrna and he is telling us that our lives are in the hands of the sovereign God who existed before the beginning of time and who will be there for all time and all eternity. Whatever else happens in the world, whatever else happens in our personal circumstances, Jesus is there as the first word and he will be there as the last word. Amen? How well do we know Jesus? Years ago, when I was in Bible college, I heard the incredibly powerful testimony of Richard Wormbrand, a Romanian evangelist who was imprisoned and tortured for 14 years by the communist regime on account of his bold witness for Christ. I remember as he came upon this stage and he had to be accompanied by some other folks. He sat down in his chair because he couldn't stand His feet had been so brutalized and tortured and just painfully so. And I remember being shocked as I listened to the stories of what he and his fellow Christians had endured. But what really got my attention was when he started talking about his relationship with Jesus. I'm quoting from his book, Tortured for Christ. We could not think anymore. In our darkest hours of torture, the Son of Man came to us making the prison walls shine like diamonds and filling the cells with light. Somewhere, far away, were the torturers below us in the sphere of the body. But the Spirit rejoiced in the Lord. And then listen to this sentence. We would not have given up this joy for that of kingly palaces. I find that statement mind-blowing. I don't like the idea of suffering for Jesus. I like to be comfortable. But the truth is, until we have been willing to suffer for Christ, we remain as mere children in the faith. And Jesus makes this explicit in the verses which follow. They needed to recognize, these believers in Smyrna needed to recognize the reality of their situation. I know of your afflictions and your poverty, yet you are rich. What a statement. Grinding suffering contrasted with spiritual wealth and vitality. Let's look first at their affliction. The Greek word used here is slipsis, and it's not a pleasant word. Its essential meaning is crushing pressure. Daryl Johnson, in his commentary on the book of Revelation, explains that the word image is that of a person being crushed or tortured to death by being slowly crushed by a great boulder. It's like being ground into the dirt. Like many Christians, the believers in Smyrna were suffering mightily. Hebrews 10, verses 32 to 34, provides us with a picture of what it was like for these Christians. Remember those earlier days after you had received the light, when you endured in a great conflict full of suffering. Sometimes you were publicly exposed to insult and persecution. At other times you stood side by side with those who were so treated. You suffered along with those in prison and joyfully accepted the confiscation of your property because you knew that you yourselves had better and lasting possessions. As with the audience to the letter of the Hebrews, the poverty of the Christians in Smyrna 
was likely related to the seizure of their property on account of their being branded as enemies of the state. They had refused to bow to Caesar, and so they were viewed as insubordinate traitors. And who was behind this this persecution? The text tells us that some Jews in Smyrna had slandered them. Throughout the New Testament, it is recorded that many Jews were violently opposed to the followers of Jesus, whom they viewed as heretics. Some of these Jews had also managed to negotiate a religious exemption with the Roman authorities, and they wanted to protect their freedom, their property, and their status. If preserving their way of life required them to throw the church of Smyrna under the bus, they were more than happy to do so. Now before we go any further, I want to add a brief word of caution. Some have combined the condemning descriptions, this word, this description we find here, synagogue of Satan, with the term Christ killers, to unleash horrific attacks on Jewish communities. I want to make it crystal clear that this text has no connection to anti-Semitism. Remember, most of the Christians in Smyrna were likely Jews themselves. Jesus was a Jew. What Jesus does here is draw a sharp contrast between people who follow God and those who do the work of Satan. These specific Jewish people had made a choice. In a very real sense, they had made a deal with the devil. Human beings carry out religious persecution, but we can always be sure that the devil is lurking in the background. The book of Revelation shows us that there is a deeper reality at work. It pulls back the veil of the unseen. I tell you, Jesus says, the devil will put some of you in prison. Government authorities and religious leaders presented the oppressive human face But the real author of their crushing crushing pressure was Satan himself. This shouldn't surprise us. By faithfully following Jesus, those early Christians were going into battle. The kingdom of light was clashing with the kingdom of darkness. And the powers of evil were being unmasked. Now so much more could be said about the spiritual battle within which we are all involved. But there's a second aspect of the reality that I want to highlight. Even in the midst of this crushing pressure, they were rich. Now how could this be? Remember what I said earlier about the testimony of Richard Wormbrandt. He knew Jesus. But even more important is the fact that Jesus knows us. Amen? Following his self-identification in verse 8, the very first two words of Jesus in verse 9 are, I know. He is not disinterested about what is happening in our lives. Jesus knows and he cares. I believe it is accurate to say that he is especially concerned about those who suffer for his sake. When Saul later renamed the Apostle Paul, was struck blind on the road to Damascus, Jesus asked him a question. Saul, Saul, why do you persecute the church? Was that the question? No, he said, why do you persecute me? 
Saul, who was already responsible for the suffering of many Christians and determined to spill even more blood, cried out, Who are you, Lord? And Jesus' reply should help us understand why the believers in Smyrna were rich. I am Jesus whom you are persecuting. Do you get it? Jesus is one with his church. No follower of Jesus ever suffers alone. Saul wasn't just persecuting Christians. He was persecuting the risen Lord. Jesus knows and he suffers with the persecuted church. Jesus' words force us to rethink the meaning of poverty and prosperity. It's human nature for us to want to be associated with success and wealth. But we fool ourselves when we allow power to seduce us. Nobody would describe suffering and persecution as prosperity. But Jesus declares that the believers in Smyrna were rich. In effect, Jesus has again pulled back the curtain to show us that we've got things backwards. We need to recognize what's really going on. And this is the gospel. Through Jesus' death and resurrection, we are made rich. In 2 Corinthians 8 verse 9, the Apostle Paul wrote, For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor, so that you, by his poverty, might become rich. We have been enriched through Christ. As a church family and as individuals, when we suffer and struggle, we need to remember that we are in fact rich because of the peace, forgiveness, and hope that have been purchased for us by the suffering of Jesus. And it's only that kind of wealth that will ever truly satisfy. Have you experienced the true wealth that only Jesus can give? We are called to respond in Christ's strength. In verse 10, two imperatives stand out. Do not fear and be faithful. These believers had every reason to be afraid. To abandon their faith in Christ would have made perfect sense from a worldly point of view. They were being crushed, impoverished, and slandered, and the future did not look any brighter. The devil will put some of you in prison to test you, and you will suffer persecution for 10 days. Now whether that 10-day time period suggests a temporary detention or whether it was the length of time before official punishment would be handed down, is difficult to determine. But it doesn't sound like it's going to be positive, because Jesus' next words are, be faithful, even to the point of death. Even to the point of death. In their own strength, those believers in Smyrna would have been fearful and faithless. But Jesus calls for the exact opposite response. Be fearless and faithful. Respond in Christ's strength. When under extreme pressure, how can followers of Jesus live lives devoid of fear and full of faith? I've studied the incredible growth of the underground church in communist China. The amazing expansion of the Ethiopian Mesarete Christus Church which grew under a brutal dictatorship. I've looked at the courageous witness of new believers in Vietnam and the remarkable perseverance of Christians in Laos. 
I've listened to testimonies from those who have converted from Islam to Christianity, who have stood firm when tortured and imprisoned for declaring their faith in Jesus Christ. They have stood fearless and faithful. What's the common denominator in their testimonies? They know the one who has gently but firmly called them to himself. They know that he will never leave them nor forsake them. They know that he has suffered everything that they are suffering and emerged victorious. They know that they are more than conquerors in Christ Jesus. Like the Apostle Paul, they confess that they can do all things in Christ who gives them strength. Like the Apostle John, they declare that greater is he that is in us than he who is in the world. They respond in Christ's strength. Never forget who it is. Never forget who it is that has called us, who has called us to be fear, fearless and faithful. And it's because Jesus is the first and the last, the one who has conquered death, that he can give us the crown of life. As we conclude, we look towards receiving our reward. There was a purpose for the suffering of the church in Smyrna. This wasn't meaningless or accidental suffering. These believers needed to know that God had not abandoned them. Nor were they being punished or tested by God. They were suffering for all the right reasons. Jesus had no word of criticism or correction for them. There's no call for repentance. The true nature of their suffering was spiritual. The enemy, the devil, was on a rampage and these disciples were caught smack dab in the middle of a battle. Here again, Jesus is the first and the last. And even this attack can be used for his purposes. We should be clear. Persecution is not some kind of a test that Jesus uses to determine who are the best Christians. Christ loves us all equally. But he can even use this kind of testing to both prove and improve our faith. Now Jesus promises two rewards to those who will stay faithful to the very end. In verse 10, he holds out a crown of life. And then in verse 11, he declares that those who overcome will never taste the second death. They will not be hurt at all. In effect, these promises are much the same. The term used for the crown in this passage refers to the victor's wreath in Greek or Roman athletic competitions. Here Jesus uses that familiar imagery to assure his followers that their testing will not lead to death's victory, but rather to their abundant life. This is a crown that cannot wither or fade away. This is eternal life. And Jesus was inviting these Christians in Smyrna to receive their reward. That being the case, these believers in Smyrna need not worry about the second death. In the book of Revelation, that term shows up three other times. And in each case, it's always about experiencing the consequences of rejecting God. Of being eternally taken away from the presence of God. Now, unless Christ returns soon... We will all experience physical death. But none of us, none of us in this room need to experience the second death. Although 
all everything in the world that the world deems valuable might be ripped away from God's children. To those who remain faithful, Jesus' promise remains forever true. No second death, but rather eternal life with God. Brothers and sisters, as I said in my introduction, it is very difficult for the church in Canada to relate to the message that Christ, Christ Jesus relayed to the church in Smyrna. It literally feels like two worlds apart. We're not being sent to prison for our faith. And yet I believe that there is a powerful message here for us, a challenge. Will the churches of our time stand fearless and faithful in Christ as the pressure builds? Will you and I hold firm, stand firm when the tests grow tougher? In Daryl Johnson's commentary on this passage, he closes with these sobering words. It seems only fair to conclude by telling you that there is a way out from under this pressure. Just don't get serious about loving Jesus. Just go with the flow of culture. Just settle for the comfortable, run-of-the-mill, watered-down kind of discipleship. Christianity light. Just settle for the status quo, blessing kind of discipleship. And there will be no pressure. And there will also be no passion. And there will also be no passion. Why would we settle for a life like that when we can experience the abundant life with Christ Jesus? Instead of living a passionless life, live a life with meaning, with purpose, and with the promise of Jesus' presence with us always. Amen? Amen. Please stand with me for closing prayer. Lord God, creator of the universe, our redeemer and sustainer, the one who knows us and loves us, we stand before you today and we worship you. Lord, I pray for my friends, my brothers and sisters here, for those who don't yet know you, aren't quite sure what it means to commit their lives to you. I pray that you would continue to draw them to yourself, that they would recognize that you hold out to them the crown of life, that there is no need to fear a second death. Lord, for those of us who have committed our lives to you, help us to stand fearless and faithful. No matter what tests come our way, no matter what suffering we may experience, we know that you are present with us. You are always with us. Thank you for your love, your grace, your mercy, and the power that is within us on account of the Holy Spirit living there. Lord, help us to keep being faithful as your servants and witnesses in this world. In Jesus' name we pray. May the first and the last, the resurrected Christ, empower us to courageously follow him wherever he leads. And may we be found faithful to the very end. In Christ's name, amen.